some of us have seen real monsters in our life, and our brains are trying to put all of the pieces of the puzzle together and understand why people can do the things that they do. Nature versus nurture, it's time for true crime therapy. Uh, today's episode is an absolutely horrific episode. Um, yes, <laughs> some days I'm like, why do I do this to myself? But then also, I have literally listened about this over and over and over again. I rewatched the documentary. I am okay. I'm going to preface this. I'm absolutely fascinated with family annihilators. Um, that makes me sound absolutely creepy, but you're all here, so you understand because you might be here because you're fascinated with them too. Um, so I really want to get into the psychology behind family annihilators. And so today we are going to dive into the Watts family murders, which is about Chris Watts, um, who obviously murdered his wife and his two children and his wife was pregnant at the time. Um, and I wish this was like a one-off case where it's like this weird thing happened and this guy decided to like kill his family. But unfortunately the name family annihilators comes from this happening over and over and over again. So I really want to get into some of these maybe warning signs some of the red flags that might come from this to keep other people protected and to also kind of open our eyes to what um, a large amount of stress can do to us physically and mentally. Um, So that's why I choose to do Family Annihilators. Um, I originally got started really with loving podcasts from the Cold Podcast, um, which is based out of Utah, which is where I'm at, um, which is off of the Susan Powell case. If you don't know this case, I will eventually dive into it. Absolutely love the cold podcast. And because I am a survivor of domestic abuse and have been in um, a very horrific relationship situation. And so I want to bring more awareness to domestic abuse and domestic violence. And so doing this dives into the family annihilator. Now, Chris Watts was a bit different than the typical one. So I'm going to start out with his and Shanann, his wife's. I'm going to go into their timeline so you can kind of understand what happened, like the perfect storm to create this situation. And first and foremost, I'm going to start out at the very, very beginning. I will not victim blame Shanann. Okay. Every marriage has both sides, right? There is struggles and both of them don't act perfectly. And that's the thing is when you feel safe in a marriage, you feel like you can be fully yourself and feel like you can do these things. And sometimes you don't do it in a healthy way. God, I'm a hundred percent the perfect example of this, but I want you to understand like their marriage was imperfect, but every marriage is, but I will not blame Shanann at any point for anything that happened to her. This was a hundred percent, not her fault. This was her husband's fault. So I just want to start off with saying that, um, I might go into like some of the situations that might have stressed him to make this decision, but it was never her fault or her children's fault at all. That was his own choice because the fact is that's the only thing we have is our own personal choice to make decisions. So on with this horrifically horrible story. So one thing that's super interesting about this case is because Shannon, Shannon, sorry, she's been also, her dad calls her Shannon in the last one. Her name has been 
said all different types of way, but her name, according to most, is Shanann, is how to pronounce it. Um, But Shanann was extremely, extremely active in social media. And in 2010, that was Facebook, whereas today, I'm extremely active on Instagram, okay? And that's, that's where I'm at um, all, all the time. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's, it is what it is. But for some people, being extremely active on social media fulfills a need that they're looking for, right? For me, um, since I am an Enneagram 3, it makes me feel like I am successful. I mean, it may not be logical at any means, but she was extremely active like myself on social media. Like she went live multiple times a day. She shared their whole story. And um, so that is where if you actually go watch the documentary on Netflix, it's called American Murder, The Family Next Door, which I do highly recommend. I feel like this is a really good one because there's not often cases that you literally get to see everything from this case. So I'll go into it more. Um, I will say if you're a person that's extremely sensitive to like actual footage, I think that's why this one is really, really hard on me as well is because like you feel like you actually get to know Shanann and her children because there is so much documentation. So that's what makes, especially compared to last episode where we got H.H. Holmes, who all the information was skewed. You don't actually know it was real. You don't actually know most of the facts. And then right before that, episode one was Israel Keys, which he hid most of his stuff. So you actually were like, I don't even know what's happening here. So this one was highly documented. And I think that's why this one hits me so hard is because I feel like I totally would have been Shanann's friend. Anyway, so in 2010, Chris, her husband, reaches out to Shanann with a Facebook friend request and they end up talking, becoming great friends, and then end up getting married November 3rd, 2012. December 17th of 2013, they have their first little girl named Bella. They were both so excited to have her. Um, Shanann actually had some health problems. She was diagnosed with lupus, which is an autoimmune disease that attacks the healthy tissues, and sometimes it can cause fertility issues and extremely high-risk pregnancies. So it was kind of surprising to her and exciting that she was able to get pregnant. And then in July, July 17th of 2015, they had their second daughter, Celeste. So they had their two little girls in a couple years. They were so excited to be parents. And both Shanann and Chris talked often about how the girls were their whole entire world. So June 2015. So this is right before they had their second daughter. The Watts family actually filed for bankruptcy. This isn't talked about as frequently, but the financial strain that happened with this family. So in 2014, they had a combined income of 90000 a year, which really isn't bad. But um, in addition to their credit card debt, their student loans and medical bills, the couple, they filed for this bankruptcy in 2015, stating that their $3,000 a month mortgage and $6,000 or $6,000 payments for your car is too much. I'd just like to let you know that's just an extreme. $600 car payments took up most of their $4,900 in monthly expenses. Additionally, their um, homeowner association sued them for unpaid HOA fees. 
So they had accumulated this large amount of debt throughout their years. And in fact, the debt person, the financial person they talked to, talked about the strain of having this second child and what it was going to do to their family unless their financial situation changed. So I really love that Red Collar, it's one of my favorite podcasts. They actually dive into this case based off of Chris being more driven financially towards the murder of his family. So I actually have that linked in the website, which I finally got the website all hooked up. It's truecrimetherapy.com. So if you go to the Chris Watts episode, it's going to have all the information and the links, but the Red Collar podcast kind of dives way more into their financial situation as a main reason for why Chris Watts snapped. It's actually super fascinating. So if you want to know more, head on over to that podcast and check out that episode that goes through their financial situation. So later that year, Shanann joins what is known as Thrive or Lavelle. It is a MLM, which I have a no hate on MLMs, joined many in my lifetime, but it works for some. Sometimes it doesn't work. It's cool. So this MLM it has a lot to do with health. And since Shanann was not in a great health place, and honestly, neither was Chris. They were both kind of in this mundane place. They decided to try thrive, fell in love, and they shared a lot about it. So Shanann shared her journey through working with Thrive, how it made her feel better. And Chris during this time actually lost a lot of weight. I think it was, let's see, he said he was about 245 pounds and he dropped down to about 180. So he became very obsessed with working out, working on his body. He became extremely physically fit and he looked much, much better. And he felt much better. And Shanann, she had begun to feel a lot better, especially considering that she had lupus and constantly felt sick. She began to feel in a much better place. So they began to share their Thrive experience. And they talked a lot about how successful they were and how wonderful it was and what a great position they were in. But a lot of that was kind of hearsay. They were actually really, really struggling. So June 11th, 2018, Shanann was so excited. She surprised Chris with the news that they were expecting again. And all of this was caught on camera. She did a video to show them. And he said, that's awesome. He he was semi excited, but you could tell there was a bit of tension in them reacting to have having a third child. I don't know if they were trying to have another child. Um, I've seen a lot of times before when, um, especially in these situations where their marriage is really struggling, trying to have another baby as like a reconnect um, or a way to help the marriage. So we don't really know where they were if they were excited to have a baby, but they find out they're expecting with another child. So during this time, Chris actually worked at a petroleum company, like an oil company. Um, All of this, he was working this oil company. He made pretty good money. He was pretty well known for being a hard worker. And he actually starts to talk to Nicole Kessinger, um, which we're going to go more into. Um, They supposedly, I mean, there's lots of variables. I also want to say that this case, because the news media was covering it constantly. We don't 100% know the truth still because there was a lot of media coverage that could have been 
uh, but kind of played with again. Anyway, so they start talking supposedly in June of 2018. So about the same time that he finds out he's going to have another baby. So they start having these conversations and I guess they start this relationship in July 2018. Um, and according to Nicole Kessinger, um, they he was going to be getting divorced from his wife at the time. He knew that he had children and was married. So he begins seeing her about four to five times a week. Um, he tells her that he's almost divorced. And then later in July, while, Sh- while Shanann and the girls go on this trip to North Carolina, he tells Nicole that the divorce is final. It's all done. He's getting he's fully divorced. So Shanann goes to see her family in North Carolina and there she's there for quite a bit. And then in July, July 31st, Chris actually goes to North Carolina to go join his family. So this is where we start to get a lot of this rockiness in their relationship because while she's there in North Carolina, she's texting him. He's not responding back to calls and she just feels like something has definitely gone wrong in the last like five weeks of their marriage. And she feels like they are in this rocky place. So she's hoping that when he comes to North Carolina, they can start to reconnect and better their marriage. But he comes and there's still a lot of tension going on between the both of them. She talks to a lot of her friends about their connection and that they're not in this great place. And they're so confused. She's so confused because she wants to connect to him, but she feels like he is extremely standoffish with her. So they end up coming back home together and on August 9th of that year, 2018, Shannon leaves for a business trip in Arizona. So her and her really close friend, Nicole Adkinson, which I'm going to talk more about her because I think she's amazing, go on this business trip together. So before leaving, she says that she has this really great connection with Chris. They talk a lot. She actually writes them this handwritten letter where she's like, look, things are going to get much better and I love you and I'll do whatever to make this marriage work. So that's August 9th. She leaves. She's gone for a couple of days and August 11th, Chris hires a babysitter so he can go, go on a date with his girlfriend. So they go on a date, they go to this bar and he uses his actual credit card. So by this time, he usually does not use anything that can connect him back. But this time, he actually uses the credit card. So Shanann is in charge of their finances and sees this charge. And she's like, hey, where did you go? And he's like, oh, I just went out to just a bar with friends. And so she's like, oh, what did you have to eat? And so she looks, she actually looks up their menu and she's like, well, this doesn't account. It seems like he had two meals. So she really is thinking that he's cheating on her at this point, which She's thought before, but now she has a little bit more evidence to go along with it. So August 13th at 1.48 a.m., Shannon returns from her business trip. Her friend Nicole drops her off at her home and she goes inside. That's the last video footage is from their front porch seeing Shannon walk into their home. So this is when the friend, um, Nicole Atkinson, becomes like this freaking hero. So she 
calls and texts her the next morning like, hey, how's it going? Um, she knew that she had a doctor's appointment and she finds out that she didn't actually go to her doctor's appointment and she is not hearing back from her. Okay, so I'd like to point out if I am not on social media, if I'm not posting, especially on my Instagram stories for 24 hours, I'm probably dead people. Okay, so like this, I totally understand where her best friend is coming from. So her friend's in a panic. She hasn't posted. She doesn't know what's going on. She's not answering her calls. This is just so unlike Shanann. I just want to say like, I want friends like Nicole in my life, which I'm pretty sure I have a few that would be like, she didn't answer me back. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I go through times where I don't answer people, especially if I'm not feeling good or whatever. But like Nicole, she ain't playing. She was like, no, she hasn't answered me back. But she also knows that from their trip, she was not feeling very well. She was not doing very well mentally. She had heard the whole thing where she had talked through that she thought her husband was cheating on her by going to this bar and grill. So she knew something's going on, which I have to say, I think that's what made this case take off so quickly and they were able to get so much evidence. So if you feel in your gut that something's going wrong with a friend that you know is already having struggles, like speak up. Like I'd rather hear that you were wrong than to know you were right and you didn't say anything. This actually happened in the Powell case as well with um, Susan and Joshua Powell. So found it very interesting, that little connection between this um, really close friend going, oh, that's weird and speaking up so quickly. So around 1.40 p.m., she calls up the police to do a welfare check um, and reports them missing. Now, a huge shout out. Like seriously, I cannot say enough about how freaking amazing Nicole is. So she is outside the house. She literally like heads to the house. She calls Chris and is like, Hey, I can't get a hold of your wife. Where is she? Where's Shanann? And he's like, I don't know. That's so weird. And she's like, I'm going to call the police. And he's like, no, no, no. Let me just head over to the house. And she's like, okay. So immediately she hangs up and she calls the police. She's like, I'm not listening to that dirt bag. I'm just going to call the police. So she's at the house. She's looking around. She's knocking on all the windows. She's done everything. And the police show up and they're like, hey, what's going on? And she's like, look, this is my friend Shanann's house. That's her car. Her kids' car seats are in there. I don't see any movement. And yo, it's the afternoon. Her kids should be up and loud. Like if you all have children, you completely understand. You cannot sleep. You can like a house would not be quiet if there's children in it, no matter what. So she's like, something is wrong. And so she's going around. She pounded on all the doors. The police officer gets there and he's like, okay, well, we can't go into the house because we have to have homeowner's approval. This is all really cool because this was caught with a body cam. He's wearing a body cam. So they, he goes around, he starts knocking on the windows and I can imagine Nicole's over there like, yeah, I already did that. Pretty sure she would answer to me first, but okay, you just do your thing. Well, Chris comes home and he like runs up to the cop and he's like, Hey, thank you. So he opens up the house and they're, they're like, can we go in? And, um, he's like, yeah, come on in. And so they're looking around the house and Chris tells them like, Oh, the blankies from the girls' beds are gone, which they have all the time. Look, I have kids. I understand like their blankies are gone. The kids are gone. Um, and the sheets are off of their bed and Chris, finds their wedding band next to the bed. 
And he's like, what is going on? He's like, well, I know we had a serious talk last night and it was kind of rough. And so it looks like she just left. But in all of this, Nicole's like, look, here's her purse and there's her keys and there's her wallet and there's everything just sitting right here. And there's her medication that she has to take daily and her kids car seats are in the car. Something happened. And they're like, well, maybe like she's Chris says that she was going on a play date with friends and he's like, maybe they came and picked them up. And she's like, this doesn't make sense because her purse is here with all their stuff. Okay. I'd just like to point out this this similar thing happened in the Joshua Powell case. Okay. So these people, number one, they suck at being killers. Okay. Maybe that's like a trait. Can we say that's a trait of family annihilators? Like they suck at being killers because like, really, like if you, you haven't thought this through enough to be like, okay, what am I going to say happens? But I think the thing is they don't account for the freaking Nicole Atkinson Atkinson's in this world that are going to be like, oh, it's been five minutes. Like he was a hundred percent not expecting anyone to be at his house that first day. He did not expect someone to realize that Shanann was missing. That blows my mind. Like he had, he had to have known that number one, she was loved and cared for by people. Number two, she talked to people all day long. Look, I'm a stay at home mom. I get a lot of comfort from talking to people online, talking to my friends all day, because like, even though I love my children dearly, I need other human beings. So he did not take into account that she had external relationships at all. So family, friends, they all start searching. They're talking about all their resources, trying to figure this out. Well, the neighbor, God bless his soul, the neighbor comes over and he's like, look, I got video footage that's motion censored. I don't know much about this, obviously, but motion censored and it points to their house. And when I first heard that, I was like, okay, that's number one, really creepy. I hope my neighbors don't have cameras pointed at my house. But Chris is like, oh, let's go over and look at it. So they go over to the house and on the body cam, you can see Chris to the left, the man that it's his house to the right. And there's this large big screen TV. So they pull it up and then I'm like, oh, this makes more sense. It's pointed at the man's truck. Okay. That lives there. So it's motion center censored basically for his driveway, which happens to catch a piece of Shanann and Chris's house's driveway. That's pretty much all you can see in like the upper, again, go watch the video footage, but the upper foot, like top, there's like a tree in the way. But earlier that morning, you can see Chris backing up his truck into the driveway, like into the garage, half into the garage. And he's like, oh yeah, I do this every morning um, to load up my gear so I don't have to walk it all the way to my truck. It was no big deal. Plus we've had all these like burglaries lately and people getting into things and the neighbor, you can just see him. He's like, yeah, 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 totally, totally. Well, they look at all this footage and Chris is kind of, while it's all going on, he's like, keeps looking at his phone. He's shifting, he's moving a ton. And so the, they get ready to leave the police officer and Chris and on the way out, the guys, the neighbor guys like, Hey, hold up a minute. Can I, can I chat with you? And so Chris, he sees that the police officer's hanging back. And so he's like, hold on, I'm not leaving without the police officer. And the police officer's like, go on, I need to take a statement and get all his information. And so he's like, okay, you can tell Chris like does not want to leave. So he leaves and the neighbor guy is like, look, he's weird. 
Like he's acting super weird. This is not his normal behavior. And I'm like, good, good for this guy. Like him and Nicole, like he's like, look, this is not normal behavior for him. He Number one, he never backs his truck up into the garage. Like, nope, that was a flat out lie. He does not do that every single day to load his stuff up. He's like, something is really weird. He does not shift. He does not act like this. And he got super chatty. This man does not talk and he like would not shut up. And he's like, he's acting weird. So giving some more clues, some more indication, like something weird is going on in this situation. Like it looks like Shanann did not leave on her own ideas at all. The next day, August 14th, um, there is a news camera that comes to speak. I think it was to a family friend. And Chris is like, look, I'll talk to him. And so he gets on this news camera and says like, Shanann, Bella, Celeste, if you're out there, just come back. Like if somebody has her, just bring her back. I need to see everybody. I need to see everybody again. This house is not complete without anybody here. Please bring them back. Super interesting. That has been like looked at in so many ways because from an outsider point of view, it might look pretty genuine, but also he has like no emotion. Like it is just... I. <laughs> I don't know. This is, again, another rule. We don't know how people are going to react in severe trauma like this. But again, there's no emotional reaction in all of this. So they're continuing the search. They're trying to figure out as much as they can, but they're kind of being stopped at a dead end. So they ask Chris if he wants to take a polygraph test. And Chris is like, yeah, no problem. And the lady, oh my gosh, the lady with this polygraph test, she is a freaking rock star. She is like hooking him up and everything. And she's like, look, you shouldn't be sitting here if you had anything to do with this, because I'll figure out pretty soon if you had something to do with this. And I was like, you're literally in the room with someone who could have murdered his entire family just, you know, just a couple days ago. And she's like, look, I'm not I'm not taking any of this. So she sits down and they go through the polygraph. And there's a few points where she's like, look, I need you to calm your breathing down like you're all over the place. And he's like, I'm just nervous. I have a stomach ache. Like he's putting off all of these excuses. They come back in later and it's the polygraph person and the I think it's like the FBI guy they're sitting down together and she's like so you failed your polygraph test can you tell us what actually happened and he's like look I didn't I didn't lie and I didn't say anything wrong I don't know what you're talking about and they're like (laughs) the detective looks at him and goes okay so I need the actual story now you need to just talk to us so he is just putting off all of this like I don't know I, I just I can't talk about it I don't know like he is all over the place and finally, the polygraph ladies like, well, did something happen? Like, did Shanann do something to the girls? Like, why? Like, do you feel like you need to protect her? And Chris sees this as his opportunity, right? He's like, ooh, finally, I have an idea of how I can pin this on someone else. Okay, I just... Okay, he's already agreed to so many things. He totally agreed to them coming in and searching the house. He's agreed to so many things. And yet here he is. He has no idea what he's going to do. He has no backup plan. He has no backstory. He's got nothing. He's just sitting there going, I I don't know. I didn't lie. I didn't lie. And then he's like, oh, I got it. So they bring in his father and he's like, I just want to talk to my dad. So his dad comes in and he says, last night we had a 
conversation or not last night, the night she was murdered, had a conversation about our marriage. She was really upset and I walked on in on her strangling the kids. So she murdered the girls. They were blue and I just lost it and I killed her. And the dad is obviously horrified. I can't even imagine being in that position where your child tells you something like that. So they arrest him. He tells them where their bodies are, which they are recovered from his work site at one of the oil petroleum things. Again, I don't know much about oil or petroleum or any of it actually. Um, But they head over to the site and he talks about that he buried her body. So her buried body is like to the side of this field, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And that he, the girl's bodies are in the oil tankers. So they are actually found within a couple days of all of this taking place. So by August 21st, Chris is charged with a first degree murder. Um, plus two additional first degree charges for victims being 12 or under. Plus he faces another count for the unlawful termination of the pregnancy. So, and three accounts of also tampering with a body. So he's got a total of nine charges. November 6th, Chris pleads guilty to all nine counts um, so that he can avoid the death penalty. And by November 19th, Chris is sentenced to life in imprisonment. And the judge actually says to him, perhaps the most inhumane and vicious crime I have handled out of thousands of cases that I've ever seen. So at this point, Chris has basically pushed off that it was his fault, right? They're like, do you mind if people know? And he's like, that's fine because I didn't kill my girls. And he kept putting off that position. That's fine because I didn't kill my girls. That's fine because I didn't kill my girls. He did not want to take responsibility for what happened. Um, he also talked about that he would. He really thought that she had figured out he had been cheating during this time. And so he felt like he was put in this situation of a dead end. He also said that during their conversation, Shanann had said something to the point of, you will never see your children again. I'm taking them away. You will never see your children again. And he was worried and concerned that he wouldn't see his girls again. So the next year in 2019 in February, he actually confesses to killing his daughters and gives a more detailed explanation, which I feel like so many people needed because they knew like (laughs) obviously Shanann did not just go and decide to suffocate her daughters, which were her entire life. So everyone was like, okay, what really happened, dude? Like we know she didn't do it. What really happened? So he talked about that he had decided the night before he remembered tucking in his girls and he was like, this is the last time I'll ever tuck them in. So he knew ahead of time what was going to happen. His wife came home. They initiated sex together and then he strangled her um but he had to have done it while she was sleeping because there were no marks on him at all there was no defensive wounds so it was either while she was sleeping or that he gave her I believe a cold medication or something to drug her 
So in the early morning, he actually put her body on the back floor of the truck and he put his girls in their two car seats alive. They were alive. He put them in their car seats. And I guess they kept asking, what's wrong with mommy? What's wrong with mommy? I can't even imagine. They drive about the 45 minutes to this oil area and he proceeds to suffocate both of his daughters with their blankets and he puts them into the oil containers and buries his wife um, who is pregnant with their son. This was not a snapped killing. This was something that he had really thought of and knew was going to happen. And I guess the thing for me is if Shanann said, I'm going to take away your girl's why, why did he have to kill them? Like, uh, I think that's the hardest part for me is I'm like, why did you have to kill those sweet girls who loved you with your whole entire soul? Why? And a lot of it they talk about is that they knew that Chris knew that Shanann would never leave her girl. So he thought if they all went away, that that would be more obvious that Shanann had left with the girls because she would never leave the girls. Before Chris's polygraph test, his girlfriend at the time comes in and wants to share her side of the story. She's like, hey, just so you know, I'm his girlfriend um, and I did had no idea. I had no idea. Like I knew he had a family. I knew he had girls. I never said he had to get rid of them. I knew it was happening. Yes, they made me concerned, but it was not something I ever said to him. And so I had no idea, but I'm worried because she's missing and I I don't know what happened to her. So she kind of talks about that he had lied to her through all of this. She thought for sure that he was divorced or getting divorced. She had no idea that he was capable of doing something like this. And she, during all of this, um, back in August, she was looking for wedding dresses. They were in a relationship that she thought thought was going to go somewhere. She thought that they were getting divorced. They, She thought that they were going to get married. And according to her, she didn't really know Shanann. Um, she did say that she started to look her up on Facebook. She wanted to know more about her and the girls. And from all accounts of their Facebook, it did not look like they were in the middle of a divorce or that they were even separated at the time. So she knew she was with a married man at that point, but she thought things were going to get better, according to her. I mean, this is mostly from her side of the story. There is a lot of speculation um, with her, which she's actually kind of out of the picture. She's um, not, she's gone somewhere and changed her name and might be under protective services as well, because a lot of people had a lot of issues with her stories and things not lining up as well. Red Collar dives into it a little bit more with the financial aspect, but I guess right after his wife went missing um, before he confessed to her. So within like three days, he had called the girls preschool, which I guess was 25,000 a year. Um, that's a, that's, that's a preschool. That's pricey. Um, and his daughters, they were extremely young, but he called that preschool to let them know that they wouldn't be coming back. So he wouldn't be charged for that. There was a couple things that he had canceled almost immediately after to make sure that, that he wouldn't be making payments on those. Okay. So 
that was absolutely horrible. But let's dig a little bit into Chris Watts. I actually could not find much about his childhood at all. So if we're going to try to go back and look at like how he was being younger, there's just not a lot of information. I don't know if that was protected. Um, And then some of the things I've seen, I'm like, I don't know if that was just written to get attention because it doesn't feel like there was actual proof to back any of it up. So there's not a lot on his childhood. So let's talk about how Chris was in his marriage. So Shanann actually talked about when she met Chris, um, it was shortly, so she had actually built their really gorgeous house. She had earned the money. She had done it all herself. She was really proud of herself. And when she met Chris, Chris kept trying to push himself into her life. And I guess she just kept pushing him away and pushing him away because she knew she was sick and she knew that she would need taking care of sometimes. And she did not want to be seen as somebody who is weak at all. And she wasn't even sure if she'd be able to get pregnant along the line. But I guess Chris just kept pursuing her. So they ended up getting married. And Chris was actually pretty easygoing. He was pretty chill. A lot of people talk about how introverted he was, how easygoing he was. He was just kind of calm. While Janan was more outgoing, outspoken, she told it like just how it was. Um, She would often talk to Chris and just be like, this is what we're going to do. And Chris would just go along with things. He was very much a go with the flow guy. And that's, I think, what shocked people the most out of this whole entire case was that he was so calm. He was so loving to his girls. There was tons and tons of video footage of him dancing and playing and being with his girls. And he wanted the best for his family and he loved them. So a lot of this didn't make sense to people. They were like, how does a person that is so calm introverted and loving that had showed no signs of prior abuse at all go from this to becoming a family annihilator. I think that's what shocks people. I actually read a case study on him. It was really fascinating, but it was by a forensic psychologist who talks about Chris Watts not actually being a psychopath. Um, That for the most part, he did not show any psychopathic tendencies. And from what this forensic psychologist said is that most people don't just like grow and all of a sudden become a psycho, a psychopath, um, that it's something that is noticeable before. And that's what makes it's so uncomfortable to people is there there was not any signs before that this could happen. And so usually when a psychopath, like they have to hide who they are and they put on a mask, but he seems like he was genuinely comfortable with who he was and he was happy for most of his life. So it didn't explain it. So he actually talks about that most people want Chris Watts to be a psychopath because It's uncomfortable for people to think that something like this could happen when someone isn't a psychopath. So people are trying to understand it and put it in our brain, which is the whole reason that I created this podcast is I'm like, I want to understand why these things happen. And it's really uncomfortable to think that Chris Watts probably wasn't a psychopath. The forensic 
psychologist actually explains, if we want to understand Chris Watts, this seemingly perfect husband, then we need to understand how he deals with stress. He bottles it. So he is somebody who doesn't cope well with his own intense emotions, and he really doesn't cope well with anybody else's intense emotions. He just tends to nod his head, appease people, go along with things. He doesn't say how he truly feels, but the problem with that is it's a really good way to store feelings of bitterness and resentment. That was what he was doing. He was storing up a real head of steam. I feel like that explains it so much is that for this family annihilator, specifically him, is that the pressure all kind of got to him. So he was a person that was easygoing and go with the flow and he wanted to make everybody happy and have things be chill. But he had looming over him. He had this bankruptcy from a couple years ago. Um, They had, they were spending more than they were making. He had this wife who did have medical condition and she, she was very much part of his life. She was talking to him a lot. She was, she showed and wanted to show this personality online. And so he had to also keep up his appearance for Shanann. And then he had on top of it, one little daughter and then two little daughters. And then to find out that there's another one on the way while he's in the middle of having this affair with this woman that he has to also financially love and show care for. So there was just, and I don't put any blame on anyone else. This was his own issue of trying to deal with stress. So here he is with all these stressful situations. And luckily, most people don't kill people when they get super stressed out because then we just have murders going rampant. But for him, it all became too much. And I I believe he didn't really think he had another way out, which is so sad that he decided that killing his family was going to be the best way out of this. So a lot of people talk about that in the end, he just wanted to end up with his girlfriend and be able to live this fancy free life. Well, if that were the case, I feel like he would have taken number one, more precautions to get away with it. It feels like he did not take as many precautions. And I think it's because he honestly, number one, he didn't know how to be a killer. But number two, he he was mostly concerned about the financial aspect. Um, And so taking that into account, I feel like the girlfriend would have been great for him, but I think he knew he was backed into a wall real quick. And so I don't think he would have done it if he was trying to get away with having this relationship, right? Because this brought about that he was having an affair. All of this, it wasn't able to hide anything. And it wasn't like he was hiding his tracks very well in the first place. So to me, I lean way more towards the financial pressure more than the girlfriend being the cause for his reason for killing his family, which I mean, financial stress is not a reason to murder your family, just in case I didn't throw that one out there. So let's jump into his Enneagram type. So the Enneagram type for Chris Watts, which I remember when I first listened to this, I was like, oh, I think I know exactly what he is right off the bat. Um, 
And again, if you don't know the Enneagram types or even what I'm talking about, go listen to my podcast, The Enneagram Mom, and I go into each type. Again, there's no good or bad types of Enneagrams. There is healthy and unhealthy. And Chris, I would definitely say say falls into the lower average to unhealthy categories. So I believe personally, Chris is an Enneagram 9, which sounds so strange because the Enneagram 9s are known as the peacemaker. So I believe he was a nine because nines are typically known for being very chill, for avoiding conflict, for their their basic fear is of loss and separation, and their desire is to have peace of mind and inner stability. So they've got this going on where they have these outer world struggles and inner world struggles, and they just want to avoid them and can be quite passive. So again, most Enneagram nines don't end up killing someone, but let's talk about what a lower average Enneagram nine looks like. They begin to minimize their problems to appease others and have peace at any price. They are stubborn, fatalistic, and resigned as if nothing could be done to change anything into wishful thinking and magical solutions. Others frustrate and angered by their procrastination and unresponsiveness. Definitely can see Chris in all of that. He wants peace at any price, so he might completely get rid of his family to get peace, right? Um, he, He thinks that nothing can change anything. He doesn't know what to do, so he gets backed into a corner. An unhealthy level seven of the Enneagram nine is they can be highly repressed, undeveloped and ineffectual, feel incapable of facing problems. They become obstinate, dissociating self from all conflict. They're neglectful and dangerous to others. And that's just the level seven. Um, If you go more into the level eight and nine, so there's levels one through nine. One through three is the best of the Enneagram, the healthy parts. Four through six are the average levels. And I'm talking about levels, not the Enneagram numbers. Just point that out. The average levels are the four, five, and six. And unhealthy is seven, eight, and nine. So it goes all the way down to nine. Eights, they want to block out the awareness of anything that can affect them. They dissociate so much they eventually cannot function. They become numb and depersonalized. So I definitely feel like he got to that level. And nines, they become severely disoriented and catatonic. They abandon themselves and they turn into a shattered shell. Um, Some things that might affect them are multiple personalities. It's possible. Schizoid and what's known as dependent personality disorder, which I looked up. So it's called DBT, dependent personality disorder. Um, It's one of the 10 types of personality disorders. Um, Others are like antisocial, narcissistic, paranoid. That's part of it. But dependent personality disorders actually start during childhood or by the age of 29, which Chris was, I think, 34. People with DBD have an overwhelming need for others to take care of them. DPD relies on people close to them for emotional and physical needs, and they may may be seen as needy or clingy. 
So some symptoms of DPTD disorder are avoidance of personal responsibility. They have a difficult time being alone. They have a fear of abandonment and a sense of helplessness when the relationship ends and oversensitivity to criticism, pessimism, and lack of self-confidence and trouble making everyday decisions. So I'm not sure if he has a DPT. Um, I could definitely see some of that where he did not want to be alone. And so he found a new relationship and it's complete a fear of abandonment, sense of helplessness in relationships. I, I could see some of this. I'm not saying he had it. I'm just trying to show that that is something that an Enneagram 9 on an unhealthy level is possible of getting. So that leads me to believe that Chris Watts is an Enneagram 9 based off of a lot of his behaviors. Again, I can't 100% pinpoint it because I can't be like, hey, Chris, what's your motivations in life? So from my perspective, especially seeing him in this unhealthy stance, I believe he's an Enneagram nine, which is, again, very strange because nines are known as the peacemakers. Apparently a nine can just lose it occasionally, which hopefully does not happen that often. I would say luckily doesn't happen that often. Okay, so let's look into some of the things that categorize a family annihilator. So it's also known as familicide. Familicide. There was a study done all about this familicide to try to understand it. So forensic psychiatrist P.E. Dietz, um, he said, this was back in 1986, the family annihilator is usually the senior man of the house who is depressed, paranoid, intoxicated, or a combination of these. He kills each member of the family who is present, sometimes including pets. He may commit suicide after killing the others or may force the police to kill him. So a study done with looking at cases between 1980 to 2012, they found a total of 71 cases where 59 of the perpetrators were male. Over half were between the ages of 30 to 40 years old when they committed the crime. About 57% of the cases that they studied occurred inside the family home. Most of the offenders were employed and were the age around 30 to 39 years old at the time of the merger. And 68% of the cases, the male annihilator committed suicide after the murder. So differing from serial killers that have uh, serial killers, mass murders, they have a pretty extensive criminal backgrounds. Um, most family annihilators have really good backgrounds. They're not really known by the police or the criminal justice system at all. They have great families, great jobs, and really good friends. And they actually look like successful people, everyday people that nobody would even think would end up killing their family. So what causes someone to murder their entire family. So there's been a lot of studies done on this, but not a lot of them. A lot of this is known because um, a lot of times people end up killing themselves after. So they're not as they're not able to get as much research as they would like to. So there was a recent study in 2019 that examined 63 research papers covering 67 studies from 18 countries that were published between 1980 to 2017. So this is where the offender killed their current or former partner and at least one child. 
In almost all the offender cases, the male was the offender, and around 50% of the cases, the offender committed suicide after the murders. With problems in their mental health, relationships, and physical health were noted across most of the cases. In most cases, this offender lived in the same house with the victims and had problems in the relationship with either a breakup or financial problems, and that was prevalent across a lot of the cases. So from this research, two types of familicide emerged. There's the despondent and the hostile type. So despondent type is the despaired offender who kills at an extended suicide. This offender kills the family due to pseudo altruistic reasons. The hostile type is the jealous offender who is motivated to kill their family out of jealousy and revenge with the primary victim being the spouse. Both types have the sense of ownership over their family, although there are different motives for the murders. The despondent offender possibly believes the family will not cope without him if he just kills himself. And the hostile offender is motivated by jealousy and may believe he has the control and can make a decision for the entire family. So from this, I think that um, Chris Powell was probably more of the hostile type. I thought at first it was the despondent, but I really do think he was the hostile type. There's four categories of familicide. So first there is the self-righteous killers. So these are the individuals, usually father, who place blame on others for their actions. They often blame the mother of their children for being the cause of the family breakup or preventing him from access of their children. They usually see themselves as the provider of the family. And if they're unable to meet that role, they can enter a very dangerous territory. There are the disappointed killers. So these are people that have been let down by those around them, most often their parents or their partner or their children. So they believe they're not good enough or not meeting their standards. And so they're what they see as honor killings. Anomic killers. For these individuals, their family is an extension of their economic success in life. And if any part of that economic economic status breaks down, um, like if they lose their job or they are in financial hardship, their family no longer serves this function. And last up is the paranoid killer. So these individuals often believe their family and especially their children are under some form of threat and they need to be protected. It may be they fear social services come in and take the children away or circumstances involving the police or legal system, which is in fear or threat to their family. So in these cases, in their minds, they kill to protect their family from an outside threat. So looking at these four different categories of familicide, I would definitely say he falls under the self-righteous killer. All of the resources that I used and the different podcasts I listened to to the documentaries and the books are all linked on the website, which I will have posted in the show notes below. And also if you head over to truecrimetherapy.com, there you will find all the resources. If you could do me a huge favor and leave a review, it helps more than you know to keep this podcast spreading. And if you could share with your friends that love true crime or family that loves true crime or Enneagrams, 
I would so greatly appreciate it. I definitely do this out of pure passion and love for trying to understand what is going on. And I would love it if you go ahead and share this. You can find us at True Crime Therapy on Instagram or on Facebook. See you for your next appointment at True Crime Therapy.